eyes wide open, mind racing with existential questions and every mildly embarrassing thing you've done in your life? Oh, fellow overthinker, I understand. But don't worry, I'm here to talk to you about it. I'll indulge the overthinking. I know there's some existential questions about science and health that are keeping you awake at night. But they don't have to be. I, Mim, student nutritionist and medical writer, will be coming on here every Monday to talk to experts like Dr. Giles Yo, Dr. Raghav Sharma and Nina Abed to answer those big questions that you and I have. And that will be season four, The Big Questions. Now let's get on to this episode. Enjoy. Welcome back to the Growth Medium podcast. Today I've got Kate Hilton from the Diet from Diets Debunked. Is that your handle? It is, right? Diets Debunked, yeah. I feel like Kate is, you know, the encyclopedia, the TikTok encyclopedia for all things dietetics knowledge. So I'm super excited to have you on. I'm super excited to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about your story? What encouraged you or led you to becoming a dietitian and then eventually starting Diets Debunked? Do you know what? There has been so many different factors which led me to becoming a dietitian. I was always from a young kid really interested in the concept of nutrition and health. You know, I was that kid that would follow my mum around the store and like look at all the labels and all that kind of thing and take things out of the trolley and put things in. So that was always kind of a really something that really interested me and I didn't actually know that being a dietitian was actually a thing until my second year of college of sixth form when my biology teacher who funnily enough actually did nutrition and dietetics at uni mentioned it to me and said that it would probably be a really good career for me and that kind of really just opened my eyes to the world of dietetics so I essentially decided to go from there Whilst I was at uni, I was very much sucked into the social media aspect of um, nutrition. Unfortunately, even though I was a dietetics student, I very much got sucked into the misinformation side of things, which led me to starting Diets Debunked, essentially, because of the fact that I knew how easy it was to get sucked into that. The fact that I was doing a degree and could still get sucked into it meant that the average person who isn't doing dietetics or nutrition really didn't stand a chance. So that's kind of how Diets Debunked began and started. And essentially now that's part of what I do online is just going through and debunking typical nutrition myths. I think that's so interesting because I kind of fell into nutrition in a similar way. I mean, I was interested because kind of from a young age, so I'm overweight, like we all know this, but from a young age, I've kind of fallen into, you know, those like weight loss kind of articles or magazine articles that you read. And that stayed with me until I was doing my degree. I was doing biochemistry and I went to like GP appointments about this and I sat there and kind of knew what they were telling me was not exactly biologically correct or biochemically correct. So I thought, okay, I'm quite lucky that I have this background that I can kind of decipher this out. But the average person has like no chance. You know, even on my course now, I'm seeing a lot of people who have been interested in nutrition for that same reason. I think it's made much worse on social media too. Absolutely, absolutely. And the fact is, is that 
anybody can start a social media account and start saying whatever they want about things like nutrition. And because nutrition is such a personal thing, and you know, everybody eats, everybody has an opinion on nutrition, it means that they can have people believe them. And it's, I feel like it's not necessarily like many other branches of science where, you know, there's a black and white answer all of the time, because it's so many shades of gray, there's always an element of truth in what they're saying, which they then use to manipulate the people who they're talking to. Yeah, that's, that's such an interesting point to bring up, because that's absolutely true. Like I've seen a lot of these claims, there's maybe one sciencey word <laughs> that's used, and then they'll drag out that sciencey word to this I don't know, ridiculous concept. It's quite annoying. <laughs> it's just from like a... Very frustrating. Yeah. And, you know, why do you think there is so much misinformation online? I mean, we talked about the fact that everyone's going to have an opinion because everyone eats. But do you think there's any other reason why this misinformation is so... I don't know, I feel like it's so specific to like Instagram and TikTok in particular as well. And how can this be harmful to then the average person? So I think with nutrition, I think there's so many things that go into it. I think partly it's because a lot of the things to do with nutrition, people want a quick fix, you know, weight loss, they want a quick fix. Equally, I think part of it is because there's a lot of misinformation online as to what very vague symptoms could potentially be. You know, you'll go to your doctor, they don't necessarily have any answers for you. So you turn to people on TikTok and Instagram who experience the same symptoms and you kind of just agree with what they say because you resonate with it so clearly. And I think this is just so harmful. I think not only does it perpetuate the whole distrust of the medical community, but it also means that people are often either ignoring very real symptoms because they think, oh, it's because of whatever this person on Instagram has said. But equally, that could then stop them getting treatment for those kinds of things. And again, if they feel like there is that distrust with the medical community, I think that is the perfect breeding ground for this misinformation. You know, I've seen it so many times in my clinical practice where people have had a bad experience with the medical professionals. They have then kind of found community and open arms in this misinformation online from holistic health coaches or hormone specialists or gut specialists and whatever it may be. They then say, we've got the best fix for you. The symptoms don't get any better. And when they eventually do go to the doctor, there is something there and something that could have either been treated a lot earlier or something that has been made a hell of a lot worse because of the fact that they just didn't go to the doctors when they should have done. And it's just so, it is so insidious and it's really difficult to identify when it's happening until you look back in hindsight and you're out of it. But it is so insidious and so harmful and can cause some real, real damage to people. Yeah. Do you think that there's any way that the medical community might have not necessarily like accountability for this, but some responsibility to, I guess, be more, I don't know, open or welcoming to people who may have, you know, been dealing with these symptoms and, you know, been ushered away from their doctor? Absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think it's necessarily all to do with the people who spread the misinformation. I don't think it's necessarily all their fault. I do think that the medical community as a whole does have a part to play in it. Because, you know, the fact that they can make people feel so unheard, 
make people feel like they are going to be ignored or blamed for whatever symptoms it is that they're experiencing and no help is going to be given to them. That is all that is doing is pushing them towards the other people online. And that is fueling the fire, so to speak. So absolutely, I think that the the way that the medical community has and still does previously treated patients really isn't helping. Yeah, no, because that's, you know, something that I've also had to deal with myself. And it sucks. And I guess because I'm someone who has that biochemistry background, I mean, I don't have a medical background, but because I know, you know, some level of science, I can kind of take the information they give me and make it adaptable to myself. But again, the average person's not necessarily going to be able to do that. And I think what's interesting as well is how, I guess, doctors or the medical community, plus this social media thing, can kind of make a very complex kind of information landscape as well. I think one thing I'm super passionate about, and I actually spoke about in um, the episode that went out on this last Monday, was the fact that there's a lot of people online, scientists, doctors, who will talk about fields that aren't necessarily their specialism. And I think that's also something that's very common in nutrition, where there's a lot of, I don't want to name anyone, and I don't want to like put off anyone from going to the doctor either. I've made this really clear this season but there's a lot of people who will yeah talk about I guess scientists I'll go to scientists because um I am one so I feel like I can kind of talk on that on like our side but there's a lot of scientists who will get very excited about like mouse studies or you know like rat studies and like you know talk about it online which is fine but then you have to make that caveat that this was in a mouse and this isn't necessarily going to be able to be replicated in a person and I think that on top of the fact that there's just so many opinions on TikTok, I think that also makes it more confusing to the average person too. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you. And that's a point that I really wanted to bring up actually, is that just because someone is a scientist or a doctor, they are a position of authority does not make them an expert on nutrition. Nutrition science is so, so complex and requires a lot different skill sets, as you probably well know, to decipher and understand the research than typical scientific papers or typical medical papers. And I completely agree with you there. You know, there are a lot of people who are doctors, scientists, or other medical professionals who use their status as that medical professional to give diet advice that isn't necessarily correct. And people believe them because they are an authority figure. And that, again, can really muddy the waters and perpetuate this misinformation that's being spread. Yeah, yeah. One of those things where, you know, like a couple of episodes I did, I can't remember exactly who it was with, but it was with another dietitian, I think. And one of the things that we came to was getting the information from the right person is just so important, especially when it comes to nutrition. Because as you've mentioned, deciphering nutrition science is a whole science in itself, to be honest. I've done biochemistry at undergrad. I'm now doing nutrition at university as a master's. And the skill sets are just so different. And then when it comes to this misinformation, so your TikTok is very, I love your TikTok, by the way. It's, I've came across it randomly, but I find it such a good space to ask questions. And I feel like that's what your TikTok really is. It's kind of that page where anyone can come ask anything and you always give such great insightful answers and you also debunk this information. So what is then your typical approach to debunking this information? How do you go about it? Thank you so much, firstly. Um, And I think it's one of those things where you have to meet people where they're at. Oftentimes, 
part of the reason I started my TikTok was so that people could ask me these kinds of questions so I could confirm or deny whatever myth it was that they believed or I could give them a little bit more nuance in the discussion that they were having about, for example, saturated fats and cardiovascular disease or something along those lines. When it comes to debunking misinformation that I see on TikTok when I do reaction videos and stuff like that, I think that the way you have to do it is you need to be no nonsense, you need to be straight talking, you need to have studies that back up your findings that are relevant and are also applicable in humans. You have to either, if they have cited some studies and they have done so either wrongly or they have used rodent studies or they've got really small sample sizes, you need to kind of unpick that and show why that that study isn't necessarily showing what they're saying it is being studied by. And you really have to be methodical about it. That's essentially what I try and do. It's one of those things that sometimes it's almost like trying to flog a dead horse because there's nothing there. And, you know, there's so much pushback. But I think the more you do it, even if it means that even just one person who viewed that no longer believes what that person was basically saying I think that that is absolutely worth it yeah and do you find that people are receptive to that approach because I feel like when there is someone who's come to me with misinformation it can often be quite emotional and then going in with this kind of more methodical really scientific approach do you find that people are receptive to that I think it depends on the person and it depends on where it has come from. You know, I appreciate that some people who try raw veganism or carnivore or keto, they do so and they see massive improvements on their symptoms, whatever those symptoms may have been. I always like to acknowledge that that doesn't, just because the science doesn't necessarily back it up, I'm not discrediting their experience. I think with those kinds of people, they do get a lot more emotional about it. When people come to you and just ask a general question, they don't tend to be as emotional and they are a lot more receptive to it. The only time when I'm very much not like that and I'm not very acknowledging of all of that kind of thing is when they are making blanket statements to appeal to the masses. So, you know, people who are carnivores saying everybody should be only eating meat, you know, fiber is unnecessary and all this kind of stuff that kind of thing I just I I don't try and even engage with that person I'm just debunking exactly what that science is and if that person doesn't like it I don't really mind because I'm not debunking it for them I'm debunking it for everybody who would have watched that video if that makes sense yeah yeah that makes sense and oh it's so funny that you mentioned carnival because for some reason my tiktok just believes that i'm really interested in the carnival diet i'm not tiktok like if you're listening i don't know if you are tiktok but i'm not interested in the carnival diet and it just oh no my stomach hurts just thinking about it do you know what i have exactly the same experience on my for you page it's just so many carnival videos and it's i don't want to know how to make carnival candy it honestly turns my is that a thing yeah, it's melted butter with bacon bits in it and you freeze it so it goes hard. Oh, yeah. Okay. Turns <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I don't want to yuck anyone's yum. If you like it, you like it. It's just not my thing. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but, but also I've been having like this weird thing where I'll have like someone who's a raw vegan and then the next video will be a carnivore and I don't think my TikTok can decide like which one I would rather <laughs> listen to. Just pushing all of the extreme diets your way. Yeah, like there's no balance. I don't know what TikTok has to do with this, but I never find any like balance on there, on my For You page anyway. Could be a reflection on who I am, but I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing I think is quite important 
is I think during the pandemic, this information landscape or how people have communicated this information or I guess also the emotions that people come in with has changed a lot during the pandemic. Do you think that that's had like an impact on how you approach this misinformation specifically? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the pandemic has a lot to answer for. And I think the the combination of everything that went on with the pandemic, plus the fact that people have less access to their GPs and their GPs are far more stretched, means that they are turning towards these, you know, the holistic health coaches, the naturopaths, the gut and hormone healing specialists online to fix the problems that they have, that their doctors just don't have the capacity to deal with. And because of that, And because of the fact that there seems to have been a bit more distrust in the medical community, the scientific community over the way that COVID was handled and things like that means a lot of people are a lot less receptive to being told you need to go to the doctor, being told that there's potentially something there and they will turn to these quacks essentially for want of a better word. It's definitely changed the way that I approach misinformation you know, before the pandemic, I definitely noticed, number one, there was a lot less of this misinformation being bandied about. But I found that a lot of the people who are doing very, very well in the nutrition space who are pushing misinformation are doing the quick snappy videos, they're doing the reactive videos, the engaging videos. And in order for our voices to be heard in as a voice of reason, we need to keep up with that. And we need to continue being reactive we need to continue being as snappy as possible and that kind of area has really changed kind of changed the game in terms of how I deal with those kinds of things I also feel like because of the distrust and the kind of like pulling back that I see from a lot of people I have to be more open to discussion with people who are spreading this information and I always do try and have a discussion either in the comments or I'll privately message someone about misinformation that they are posting, trying to understand their point of view before I go and do a reaction video to it or go and debunk it. And I think that that is quite useful as well, actually talking to the source, talking to the person who's doing it, because having that conversation means you're more likely to be able to change their mind. If you can back it up with sources, evidence, research, you can show exactly where their argument is flawed. You can discuss with them why, you know, rodent studies aren't applicable to humans. That can, even if it doesn't do it immediately, it can start to turn the cogs in their heads and reduce the risk of them posting further misinformation in the future. And I think that's like a really interesting point to make because I think that's also something that a lot of kind of more evidence-based voices have realized. But I guess, I mean, I haven't done any of that myself. I'm too scared. (laughs) But also, I don't have the qualification (laughs) yet. So maybe after I get my qualification. But do you find that, and I appreciate this might be really general, but do you find that like the person who's posting that misinformation is receptive to that kind of discussion too? It really depends on the person. I find that those who started, let's say, you know, going back to the carnivore, raw vegan diet things, if they started that diet because of a health problem they had themselves and they saw improvements in it, they aren't receptive in the slightest. They don't care. They think this is my lived experience. Everybody else is going to have that lived experience. I don't care what you've got to say. If they're one of those people who is just general kind of like a bit of misinformation and things like that 
then they are a lot more receptive and a lot more willing to converse with you and discuss that kind of thing. Obviously, there's always going to be exceptions to the rule on both sides. You know, sometimes I'll send a message to someone and instantly get blocked. But, you know, that is just the life and that is just the way that it happens, if you see what I mean. It really depends on the person, I think. Then how do you kind of pick and choose your battles? Like, how do you pick if you're going to message someone or if you're not going to message someone, if you really want to give them that evidence? Because that feels like such a, um, like, it's definitely important to do, but it feels like really time consuming. Oh, yeah, it's quite time consuming. I mean, it really depends. I think that if there is something that is incredibly dangerous, that is something that I often will that is something that irrespective of what they say to me, I'm still going to react to it and be like, no, you need to stop this. And it just tends to be whatever comes up in my For You page, actually, to be fair, I tend to get a lot of the misinformation, which is pretty good because it helps me keep on top of things. If there's anything there that kind of really sticks out to me or that I can see has been misinterpreted like and is glaringly obvious, I will definitely message them and just let them know. But... You're right. It is quite a time consuming thing to do. And it really depends. Sometimes you can tell a creator is not going to be receptive to whatever you say. So I kind of don't bother with those people because it doesn't matter what I say. They're they're not going to respond to that in a good way. But yeah, it's very much kind of a a general feeling based on what they posted before, what they post now, how long ago it was posted, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And this has also just come into my mind. Does that approach kind of change when it's someone... Okay, I'm going to word this carefully. I feel like there's a lot of people on TikTok who nutrition might not be their kind of primary thing. It might be that they're a lifestyle influencer or, you know, like a lifestyle influencer who talks about their day, kind of how they're improving their lives, that kind of thing. And they might have like a what I eat in the day, for example, and there might be some like misinformation in that. Do you kind of take that same approach with those as well? Or do you kind of just think, you know what, they're not trying to do any harm. So I'd rather focus my efforts somewhere else. Yeah. So in fact, those people tend to be the ones that I will message the most because of the fact that something, I mean, a lot of them have, you know, millions and millions of followers. So it's getting spread to a lot of people. And Seeing those kinds of things, like you say, what I eat in a day, I I think I saw one the other day, which was something about how to go on a sugar detox or something, because it's, I think she said it was something like it was bad for your liver and bad for your adrenals and all this kind of thing. And I sent a message to her because there was loads of people in the comments being like, I'm going to go on a sugar detox. I'm not going to have any fruit. I'm not going to have, and some people were taking it to extremes. Like I'm not going to have any carbohydrates. I'm going to just have, you know, meat and dark green leafy vegetables and it was that kind of thing so in those circumstances I absolutely do message them even if it is just a comment on their video that I'll put on there just being like FYI if anybody's reading this that isn't something that is necessary that isn't something that you need to be doing and that isn't something that is necessarily going to massively improve your health and in fact will probably just be really difficult to do and make you miserable whilst you're doing it yeah just as an FYI guys like your liver it is it's, it's a role <laughs> is to do this okay like it's not it's supposed to be metabolizing all this sugar and fats and whatever so just in case anyone was thinking about going on a sugar detox please don't I mean not to say like don't like guzzle down like sugar either but absolutely absolutely 
So I think, you know, throughout this conversation so far, it's very, very clear that there are so many voices. There's so much misinformation. There's so many different levels of people who are receptive to being corrected, people who aren't. And, you know, that's one responsibility on the creator to kind of, if they want to sort that out or not. But then there's also the viewer who they in this digital landscape we have they're kind of not necessarily expected to but I feel like there might be this pressure to um, be able to decipher that information and filter out what is true what isn't true and that's really difficult you know that's something that we struggled with even until like during our degrees so do you have any advice that the average person could take on to kind of equip themselves with the skills to decipher what's true and what isn't? I think the best thing that you can do is surround your social media with evidence-based practitioners. Be very particular with who you are getting your information from. In the UK, you know, if someone is a HCPC registered dietitian, if someone is registered with the Association for Nutrition, they have done an evidence-based degree. So they are more likely to be evidence-based. They are more likely to be accurate than someone who isn't. I'm not going to say that they're going to be they're all going to be accurate. There's obviously always going to be a bad apple in every cart. But at the end of the day, that's going to give you a higher chance that that information that is going to be given to you is going to be more accurate. Equally, I would also say avoid people who have kind of non-titles. So holistic health coach, naturopath, things like hormone specialists. I've mentioned all of these throughout the episode. And This basically to anybody who is getting nutrition information is a massive, massive red flag because essentially they very likely did not get any formal education in nutrition. And because they didn't get very much formal education in nutrition, it's likely that the stuff that they are citing or the stuff that they are interpreting as scientific evidence doesn't actually show what they are saying it shows. I would also be wary of people who either don't cite their sources or if they don't cite their sources and you ask them to cite their sources, they just decide not to. That is, again, another red flag that shows that they either know that the science doesn't show what they're saying it shows or that it is not reliable data or that they actually don't have any evidence to back up their findings. And kind of on the same vein as this, I would also be wary of following people who will never admit that they're wrong. And this is this is a massive one. As you know, the field of nutrition develops every single day. It's something that is ever evolving. And because it's such a new science, we are changing our minds as a collective. And a lot of people think that that is untrustworthy of us because you know last month we said that sugar was really bad this month we're saying it's not as bad as we thought it was essentially the reason we do that is because the evidence is changing if someone is never wanting to change their stance and admit that previously they may have said something that is now not factually correct that suggests to me that they aren't evidence-based and they aren't providing and updating their knowledge base and adapting to that so I think really primarily, it's just being really particular with who you are following. I would also say if you are following anybody, you're getting information from somebody and they're selling something like a diet plan, supplement, anything along those lines, a very specific diet plan, supplement, that kind of thing, they are probably also untrustworthy. They're doing it for the money. They're not doing it because they truly understand. Obviously, you know, there are very reputable scientific advisors and, you know, 
nutrition and health professionals who do sell like their services, but they will never be selling a specific diet, a specific supplement, a specific course or anything like that. They will be providing a service that is holistic and it is very much unique to the person who is going to purchase it. Yeah, no, that's that's really great advice. And I think on that in that same kind of vein of updating that information, definitely be very I think so I saw one of your TikTok videos about it was like a call to H was it a TikTok video or a story? It might have been one of those, but it was a call to HCPs to make sure to filter through their TikTok and if there was any like old information that's no longer true to go and delete those. And I think if you can go and see a creator who's gone and done that, like that's a very, very good sign that what they're giving you is from the best evidence that they have and I think also just be like really confident to question it because again I mean there's like a lot of people who have like a position of authority who might be saying something tag your favorite dietitian or a registered nutritionist and ask them like is this actually true I've seen a lot of cases where there's a random doctor again I don't want to say doctors aren't knowledgeable they are but there'll be like a anesthesiologist for example who's done one nutrition course in their undergrad degree and they will be talking about the benefits of intermittent fasting for example and whilst they do obviously have scientific knowledge be confident enough to tag a registered dietitian and ask that registered dietitian is what this person saying correct because in that specific case an rd is going to be more knowledgeable on that than someone who's a doctor absolutely and i completely agree with you there what i think what a lot of people don't understand and i think a lot of doctors and dietitians don't understand it either is that reading research for a medical degree and reading research for nutrition is they're two completely different skills. Number one, medical degrees, they're often, you know, randomized controlled trials, they're double blinded, they have, you know, a placebo, they they are a lot more clear cut with the results than nutrition is because nutrition, the vast majority of the stuff that we have is observational. Just because of the nature of nutrition, we can't double blind people because everybody's going to know if they're on the low fat or the low sugar arm of the trial. And Half the time it's considered unethical because, you know, we could be introducing deficiencies and things like that. So it's two completely different skill sets. And many, as I say, many doctors and many RDs as well don't actually appreciate the fact that they are two different skill sets. So doctors think, okay, I'm really, really good at understanding the research in my medical degree. I can do this for nutrition, but it's not quite the same thing. And it's often a very different way that you have to interpret that data. And that can mean, like you mentioned, some doctors can spread that kind of misinformation unknowingly because they think that they've interpreted something correctly when in actuality, as a nutrition paper, that was not necessarily robust. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And I think another thing just for, you know, some of our listeners who are maybe doing a degree in biochemistry, biomed, medicine, whatever, the research... I mean, the techniques are vastly different in the two kind of fields. Like when we're doing biochemistry or biomed, we're usually looking at one very specific molecule or chemical or drug that acts on one pathway. That's generally how the research is. Whereas with nutrition, it's a lot more... You can't do that. You just can't do like one specific chemical in one specific pathway and then make this very one specific claim because 
you just can't like if you're giving food you're giving food it's going to act on multiple things and you look at that in totality and that's a very I mean I'm obviously now I think five six weeks into my master's and it's something that I've had to get used to as well because it's not a skill that I have before it's a skill that you have to build up absolutely absolutely and it's it's a diff- completely different skill set isn't it and it must be really difficult and quite jarring going from one to the other oh my god honestly my brain cannot handle <laughs> like i so oh my god i literally had an oral exam yesterday and it was about like metabolism and metabolism was you know it's my bread and butter it's what my entire degree was about but one thing about when it comes to nutrition is that you're not looking at one metabolic pathway you're looking at how all of these interact with each other and that really tripped my brain out like i could not figure it out for the life of me it's so confusing, isn't it? I remember my metabolism lectures at uni and you go out thinking that your head's about to explode because <laughs> you've got to think about all of these different things and all these interactions and it can get so confusing. The thing is, I'm so happy to tell you the reaction. I'm so happy with that, but I'm not happy to put it together. Like that's where I struggle just because I have that background. But yeah, sorry, a bit of a tangent there. Sorry. But okay. <laughs> In your time on TikTok so far, this is going to be a bit of a salacious question, but what do you think has been the most controversial or harmful piece of misinformation you've seen? And, you know, did you go about debunking it? How did you do so? Oh, God. I mean, it's so difficult to choose one thing, but I think that the the biggest thing for me is the idea that severely restricting your diet by cutting out entire food groups is a good thing to do because this encompasses you know, raw veganism, keto, carnivore, you know, when you're raw vegan, you're literally just eating fruits and vegetables, you're cutting out the carbohydrates, which provide you the B vitamins, you're cutting out the protein, which provides you the iron, the zinc, the iodine, you're cutting out the dairy or alternatives, which provide you the calcium, you're cutting out the fats, which give you the fat soluble vitamins. And it's completely a reverse for carnivore and keto, you tend to be cutting out things like the you know, good water soluble vitamins and minerals that can lead to mega deficiencies if you're going to that side of the spectrum. And not only that, you're also, because of the fact that the vast majority of your diet is now a specific or singular um, food group, you're now mega dosing on other things like carnivore or keto, you're mega dosing on saturated fat and trans fats. And that is just as harmful. All of this just leads to massive risk of deficiency, massive risk of deficiency diseases, massive risk of excess of things like saturated fat, so increased risk of cardiovascular disease. And overall, all of this stuff is just bad. And, you know, overall, that is the biggest thing that grinds my gears is people promoting these really, really, really restrictive diets that cut out entire food groups because of the risk of deficiency, the risk of problems that can be caused by doing so. And that's never talked about. Now, I've done quite a few videos debunking these kinds of things. They're not necessarily all reaction videos, um, but I will do videos on just essentially why doing those kinds of things is bad, just as I mentioned just then. But I'll also do videos, and I think this is quite controversial in dietetics, but I have also done videos in the past trying to meet the people who are doing these things where they're at. So trying to meet the raw vegans and the carnivals and things where they're at and giving them some tips on how to do it in a healthier way, in a more balanced way. Because I feel like, you know, I can reach a certain demographic of people who potentially haven't started doing those kinds of things yet with the 
debunking those videos, but those people who are already in it, I'm not going to reach them. And I want to do as much as possible to reduce the harm that that diet is going to do for them. And I always clarify, I say, this isn't an optimal way to eat, but if you want to optimize it and make it so that you're going to put yourself at the least risk possible, you can do these five things and that will massively improve the nutrition of your diet. And I think doing both of those kind of encapsulates everybody and means that people don't feel alienated or don't feel attacked. And I feel a bit more listened to, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's a really, I really like that approach of meeting people where they're at. Because like you said, if you go in straight with, you know, this is an unhealthy diet, here's, you know, you need to include proteins, fats, well, like a raw raw vegan, for example, you need to cook your food, you need to include proteins, fats, they're not gonna listen. Like they're just gonna, like you said, not feel listened to. And I can understand why that's a controversial way of going about it. But again, it's about meeting people where they're at and where they're more likely to take on your advice and at least do something that's a little bit better for them, right? And I think like the biggest thing there is harm reduction. You've got to be doing, I mean, I wouldn't be a good dietitian if I didn't do what I could do to reduce the harm as much as possible. And I would always want to ensure that any advice that I give is going to be the best for that person and going to optimize the nutrition of that person and reduce that risk. Yeah. And just on that, I think that's also important to mention that you are able to do that because you are a dietitian, you have that qualification. If, for example, you see someone who is a registered nutritionist or who isn't even registered to begin with doing that, that's not the greatest. Like you can't, like a registered nutrition for a nutritionist, for example, cannot be giving specific advice in that way. So again, that's something to be very wary of. Absolutely, absolutely. And you make a great point there is that there is a difference between a nutritionist and a dietitian, whereas dietitians can give things that are going to, you know, potentially be more individual, impact certain medical conditions and things like that. Nutritionists can be very general about it, but can't go into the specifics and things like that. So you're completely correct there. And in a different vein, I did ask my Instagram followers if they had any questions for you. And I think like one very common trend that came up was the issue of dairy. So generally what the consensus was that, you know, for example, someone was able to have dairy their entire lives and, you know, they get older and now they can't have dairy as much. It hurts their stomach. It gives them cramps and it gives them acne or whatever it may be. Do you think... (laughs) I don't know, this is a very hard question to take because I think one specific person was was really asking, why does this happen? And I've been cutting out dairy, for example, and my symptoms have gotten a lot better. Should I then go on and continue doing this? What are your kind of thoughts on that? So it really depends on what the symptom is as to why they may be experiencing the symptoms that they're experiencing. So a lot of people, as they get older, they become lactose intolerant essentially because as we get older the lactase enzyme basically stops being produced as much as it used to when we were younger this is exacerbated if we have periods where we aren't having any lactose at all so if we're not using that 
lactase, then essentially we stop producing it. But for some people, they can continue eating it and then just suddenly out of nowhere, they can't tolerate it anymore. That is what will be causing the kind of gastrointestinal symptoms and that kind of thing. In terms of the acne, from the evidence that we have at the moment, there is a very slight correlational risk between higher fat dairy and acne prevalence. At the moment, we've found very few links between lower fat dairy, specifically lower fat fermented dairy, and things like acne. We aren't entirely sure of the mechanism with that, to be honest, because, you know, that's just not something that we have been aware of. Some people do find that it can massively improve their symptoms of things like acne if they do get rid of dairy. And for those people, I would say it's absolutely fine if that is what you want to do. But what I would say is you need to be thinking, what am I going to be replacing the nutrition that I'll be getting from that dairy with? So the primary things that we need to be thinking about is protein source, especially if you are having a lot of dairy anyway. So we have really good bioavailable protein in dairy. Where are you going to get that protein from instead? Where are you going to get that calcium from? Where are you going to get that iodine from in particular, especially if you don't eat any fish because dairy and fish are basically the primary sources of iodine in the UK diet. Replacing those with fortified plant milks, something like a soy milk or a pea milk that is fortified with calcium and iodine is the easiest way to do it because you can replace it one for one. But equally, you can get that protein from other sources, whether that be meat, fish or eggs, vegetarian sources like tofu, tempeh, that kind of thing. Calcium you can get from calcium set tofu, dark green leafy vegetables, fish with bones in them where you're actually eating the bones and the iodine you can get again from fish but you can also get that from certain types of seaweed. Just be very careful with the type of seaweed that you're eating because things like kelp can actually have way too much iodine in them so it's a bit of a balancing act there. Okay I didn't realize that seaweed could have or a type of seaweed could have too much iodine. The um, kind of risk to having too much iodine So having too much iodine can actually cause um, thyroid problems. So having too much iodine can essentially prevent our thyroid from working properly. And it can lead to hypothyroidism later on. So what we would tend to say is things like nori tend to be okay. It's more things like kelp that you need to be really careful of. I would say as well, if you want to get an iodine supplement, do not use a seaweed supplement because the iodine in them is so variable. Some of them can have barely any iodine in them at all. And some of them can have 5,000 times the thyrotoxic dose. So it's so variable. So yeah, it's just being a bit mindful of that. As with all nutrients, it seems to be a bit of a bit of a balancing game, trying to kind of find the, the best middle ground. I have a question about dairy, actually, now, as you've been speaking. So you mentioned that some people will just, as we get older, uh, become lactose intolerant. Some people, it will just happen overnight, unfortunately. And if you don't have dairy for a long time, then you kind of may not produce lactase anymore. So do you then think it's worth, and I guess, again, this might be a very general answer, but do you think it might be worth cutting out dairy then if we're risking losing that? lactase enzyme because I feel like that would be something that's a bit more of like if you cut it out for like let's say six weeks and then you try to eat cheese again that would be really annoying yeah absolutely and that's a really great question I think it's very dependent on you and what you want if you are willing to take that risk then by all means take it There are things that you can do to improve your tolerance to dairy. So you can get lactase pills now. So you can take that with dairy. So you can kind of, you know, 
even if that did happen to you, you would still be able to have dairy or you could just go for the low lactose stuff. There are certain low lactose cheeses tend to be the kind of the, the more mature hard cheeses like cheddar and things like that that are lower in lactose than things like, you know, you've got like ricotta and things like that, which are really high. Yeah, it really depends on you. If whatever symptom you think is caused by dairy is annoying you enough to warrant that, that is absolutely fine. There are as I say, so many good alternatives now, whether that be the lactase pills, the lacto-free stuff or dairy alternatives. Dairy alternatives have come a long way in the past 10 years. So you've always got options there. But yeah, it really depends on you and what you feel would be best for you if the potential improvement of the symptoms that you're experiencing would far outweigh the negative of becoming a bit more deficient in lactase, then that could be a risk you're willing to take. Yeah, yeah, that's really interesting because I personally could not give up cheese. And I can't imagine if I had to like cut out dairy and then have troubles eating cheese, I'd be really, really upset. But yeah. So to end this episode, do you have any specific myths that you'd like to bust or any additional tips on how the average person can avoid misinformation online? So two different things there. Oh gosh, so many myths I want to bust. The first one is something that keeps coming off my For You page at the moment. And this is parasite cleanses. Just a PSA to anybody listening. You cannot cleanse yourself of parasites by eating papaya seeds. If you do have a parasite, you need to go to a doctor and get antiparasitic medication because that needs to be treated and papaya seeds aren't going to kill it. But the likelihood is, is that any of the symptoms that are attributed to parasites that people on TikTok are portraying are attributed to parasites aren't attributed to parasites at all and are just general symptoms, very vague symptoms that most people have like fatigue or painful periods or something like that. And it's nothing to do with parasites. That is the that's the thing that seems to be coming up on my For You page again, because it was, I think it was like 2021, early 2021, where this started. But it's coming back again, apparently. Like, isn't it really rare to have a parasitic infection in like a developing country? Oh, sorry, a developed country. Like, yeah, no, I'd, I'd imagine it's like super, super rare. Yeah. And the thing is, so there are certain types of parasites which are far more common, especially in developing countries. So I think it's calminthesis is one that is microscopic. It doesn't actually cause any symptoms, but it is a parasite that is in like a third of the world's population or something. In the UK, the parasites that we have are going to be primarily from things like undercooked pork and stuff like that. And it's really not very common and isn't something we necessarily need to worry about. And, you know, at the end of the day, if you do actually have a parasite, you're going to be having far more symptoms than just the general low mood or fatigue or painful periods that tend to be attributed to parasitic infections, according to TikTok. Yeah, no, I can imagine. Any other myths that you'd like to bust or any other tips that you'd like to give? Yeah. So um, another one, and this is something that again, keeps coming up on my For You page is that there is no one specific food or spice or anything along those lines that will either treat or cure cancer. There is no specific dietary protocol that is going to treat or cure cancer. There are general diet behaviors, which may reduce your risk, but they are not going to treat or cure it. If you've already got it, it's not going to make a difference. It's this, this is one that really quite upsets me because people who have cancer will often be desperate, especially if they fall down the rabbit hole of holistic medicine and things like that. Oftentimes what can happen is they can forego 
conventional treatment to be treated with things like Gerson therapy and stuff like that. And unfortunately, the outcomes of that are dire. They're, they're really dire. You know, you you have people passing away from something that was completely treatable. And this is one that really is really, really, for want of a better word, parasitic. It's very insidious and it's very it's very upsetting when you see it happen. You know, cancer patients are very, very vulnerable patients, right? So a lot of people will target this specific group to, you know, sell supplements or set a diet if that's what they're doing. And I think it's, I, honestly, I feel like it's something that's quite recent. I feel like I haven't seen it, you know, before like 2020. So I don't really know where it's come from, but I, like you said, it's very insidious. Oh, it absolutely is. And the thing is, is that oftentimes they're targeting this group of people because they know that the conventional treatments for it are absolutely horrendous. You know, chemo and radiotherapy are awful. They have so many side effects. Obviously, they are incredible therapies that have saved thousands and thousands and thousands of lives. But the symptoms and the side effects from them are often quite, they're too much for people to take. And so people end up essentially turning to these alternative therapies to help cure themselves and unfortunately meaning they reject conventional therapies and there have been very many cases where people have finally realized that you know these alternative therapies aren't going to work and unfortunately by then it's too late and it's so so sad it's it's just so it's so predatory yeah yeah it honestly is it's awful I, there's like nothing else to add to that other than it's genuinely like such an awful thing to do to someone. Mm, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, anybody that does that should really be ashamed of themselves, ashamed that they are targeting those kinds of people. Yeah. And I think that's probably where we'll end today's episode. So a lot of the points that we've raised, I think it really echoes a lot of the sentiment that we've had so far in this season, which is, you know, have your trusted source of dietitians, nutritionists for what their specialism is and have that little bit of cynicism as well when you're looking at this misinformation. And also don't be afraid to call it out or ask someone if you are unsure. So yeah, thank you so much, Kate, for coming on. Again, I feel like Kate's TikTok is like an encyclopedia of knowledge. So if you ever have a question or you just want to like have some general knowledge on something, I really recommend her TikTok. All her links will be in the show notes. And yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mim. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Go ahead and leave a review and rate us, hopefully, five stars on wherever you're listening from. Don't forget to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, and head over to thegrowthmedium.com for more detailed information pieces. See you next week for another episode. Bye!